0: From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Symposia. Welcome to Symposia. I'm Sage Tangway. Brown College is a residential college at the University of Virginia, but it offers much more than a place to live. The Brown Talks are a student-led lecture series for residents to present on any number of topics to their fellow students at the historic Monroe Hill House. We hope to have the opportunity to present more Brown Talks in the future on this show, as well as a conversation with their current facilitator, Rory McAlevey. Today, I'm joined by Principal Jim Cohn.
1: These Brown Talks are are just It's so delightful for me that students coming in to the Monroe Hill House, um, organizing themselves, uh, speaking on behalf of themselves, uh, attending the lectures by themselves—it's just—it's—it really lifts my spirits when the students take charge of their intellectual life college stops becoming something that they go to to have an intellectual experience and starts instead becoming their life. When they're talking to each other, they are braiding together the intellectual and aesthetic and ethical and scientific ideals of the university and the daily life that they live and are going to be living going forward because they own it theirs. The university should be a place that lays the foundation for and facilitates the kind of thing that happens when students gather together on their own for their own purposes.
0: Today's episode features a presentation from resident Alexander Templeton.
1: In this particular case, Alexander came in to talk about effective altruism, which is the idea that If you put some real, deliberate, intentional thought behind what you're doing, you can be more impactful than they might be if you're just sort of responding to the ad that pops up, uh, you know, at the website you've gone to, et cetera. If your goal is to help as many people as possible, there are strategies that can help you achieve that goal. Alexander was kind enough to come in and and share a lot of that with us.
0: Alexander started off on a great foot by handing each of the audience members a crisp $1 bill.
2: So before we start, I gave everyone here a dollar, and you're going to make a choice about a donation to give to. So all of you are gonna start this by making a donation to your charity of choice. I have three. The first one is to the Against Middle Area Foundation, I won't explain too much into it because you'll learn more about it as this goes on, but they make bed nets to prevent malaria. There's the Climate Change Fund, fights climate change, and there's the Global Catastrophic Risk Fund, which fights global catastrophic risk. Come up and make your vote with your dollar.
0: Several of the students expressed concern that maybe some of the charities were fraudulent or otherwise bad.
2: None of these are ones. They are genuinely the best charities in each of their respective things. You're also welcome and encouraged to put more money after. Any money you put in here will be doubled by me to the actual charities. All right, so I think the climate change one wins by a little bit. So the first question is, does charity actually help because As Everett pointed out, there are lots of horror stories of icky charities, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And the reason most people usually give to charity is usually because of some social pressure that there's someone on the lawn saying, hey, donate to this cause, or you hear a news story about an earthquake in Turkey and Syria that makes you wanna donate. It's usually under some social pressure because there's generally a low amount of trust and there are genuine reasons for this. One of the famous examples that's brought up all the time in Effective Altruism is what's called the um, play pumps, which were a great revolutionary charity idea, well-intentioned, genuinely well-intentioned, pump up water and get clean water by having kids play on the thing. And it got huge amounts of publicity and donations from lots of celebrities. And uh, turned out it was worse than just normal pumps. People were just using them like normal pumps and it ended up kind of being child labor by getting kids to run the pumps in order to get water. So a well-intentioned thing turned into a bad uh, bad situation, and that's the story we hear about a lot of charities. However, if we take just one single act, which was largely done by charity, which is to this day one of the greatest things humanity's ever achieved, is the eradication of smallpox. In the 20th century alone, 300 million people died to smallpox, about three million every year. It was eradicated in uh, 1977, I believe. So if we take all of the charities that's been done, that amounts to about $2.3 trillion, And if we say smallpox, the eradication of smallpox is the only thing that was achieved, then we still get 60 to 120 million lives saved by the eradication of smallpox at 3 million lives per year since it was eliminated, which goes to less than $40,000 per life saved, which is an incredible deal when you consider the U.S. government standards um, when it goes to the EPA, the federal health and safety regulation, the US government actually rates the value of a human life between six million and ten million million and that they will make a change. They will build some infrastructure if they estimate one life will be saved for every six to $10 million put into that infrastructure or regulation or what it, whatever it is. So $40,000 per life is an incredible deal. And that's only if it was smallpox. And to put that in perspective, the amount of people And this statistic is prior to 2020, so not including the current war in Ukraine or anything. About 12 million lives were lost due to war in the same period since smallpox has been eradicated. So far more people have been saved by this one largely charitable act of eradicating smallpox than would have been saved if we had achieved global peace since then. So what we can get from that is that... While the typical, and this is the argument often brought against charities, while the typical charity is not that effective and is often something like either well-intentioned or uh, just icky charity, charities tend to be extremely, extremely skewed in that the top charities do hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of more good than the typical charity. So if we can figure out which charity to give to, such as one that's trying to eliminate smallpox versus just an average charity that you might see someone advertising that you don't know about, you can do exponentially times more good. So then how do we actually figure out what does the most good and figure out which charities are those ones? So in effective altruism, there's typically three items we look for when we're trying to do good. One is importance. This is obvious. The bigger a deal it is, the better you're gonna get out of it. Smallpox kills 3 million people a year. Let's get rid of smallpox. Malaria kills about 600,000 people a year. Obviously a very big deal. The second is tractability. How easy is it to actually solve this problem? There's a lot of problems that require huge, huge investments to solve. One big one is climate change or anything that often gets anything hugely global in scale, often very hard to solve. As we'll get into some of the more obscure things like AI safety risk, it's hard to know exactly what it is to do to do better. And this often comes in many mainstream political debates as to what does right or wrong. Global health typically is one that, If you give bed nets, you can reduce malaria. Third is neglectedness. This is because if you already have a billion dollars going into something, adding your own one dollar isn't gonna do a whole lot. If you have only a couple thousand dollars going into one charity, then your marginal impact can be huge. So we look for how important a thing is, how good will it be if we solve it, how solvable is it, and how neglected is it? How much can we do as one person to add on to what's already being done. And the other parts of effective altruism is doing quantitative studies. Instead of just looking at a whole bunch of charities and this looks good, this looks good, actually applying the scientific method and quantitative methods to figure out what is right. A couple decades ago, I think, one of the early people that went on to help co-found the philosophy of effective altruism was in Kenya, and he was working with some people trying to increase school rates and education rates in Kenya and Malawi. So there are debates between a whole bunch of different things, such as giving textbooks directly to kids, giving direct cash transfers to people wanting to go to school, training teachers, the things you would normally think of. And and his idea was, instead of just guessing what would do right, actually doing um, scientific experiments. In one community, run the textbooks. In one community give direct cash transfers to families with elementary school kids the age that they would go to elementary school and in running these tests they found that by far the biggest impact was actually deworming treatments deworming isn't a thing you typically think about when you're coming from a first world context where it's not really a problem at all but in many of these contexts deworming affects about a million kids every year and the health effects of it often prevent people and kids from going to school. So what they found through applying quantitative scientific method was something that you wouldn't think of at all when it comes to education, had a significantly higher impact on education rates than anything else. And this is something that will show up in practically everything with health charity and that you will often find one thing which is extremely on the order of a hundred times more helpful than anything else you have. So finding that can improve your effectiveness incredibly. So putting this into numbers, a metric that's often used and is now by used by the UN, UNESCO, a whole bunch of charity related things are what are called quality adjusted life years. Because if you're trying to compare the effect of improving people's education versus the effect of malarial bed nets, it seems these are totally different things. How could you compare them? So this is just one metric used. The way it works is you say someone with a negative condition or or a positive condition such as being blind. The question becomes for 10 days living with this condition being blind, how many would you be equivalently happy to live without this condition? So if you said, I would be fine living 10 days blind, it would be the same as if I lived six days with sight, then you would say the quality adjusted life years of blindness would be 0.6. And from doing that, you can compare a whole bunch of different seemingly unrelated health and other Uh, effects and compare them to each other and have the greatest impact you can have one big advantage and importance that we can have from our context is how much can we actually do and because often the idea is well yeah if you're a billionaire you can afford to to give to charity so i'd just like a few guesses from the room if knowing what you know about wealth inequality and everything else you've learned about guess five years from now whatever job you think you'll be in guess where you would be on the overall Percentile of income globally? Do you think you'd be the top one percent, top forty percent, top sixty percent? Just imagine yourself in five years, and I'll take a few guesses. Yeah.
1: Top five percent.
2: Five percent? Yeah. <laughs> top one percent. <0. 1%. laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Top sixty percent. Sixty percent. All right. Oh, six percent or sixty? Sixty. Okay. Yeah. That's not the highest hopes. <laughs> All right, so here is the actual global wealth distribution picture, and that's pretty dense, so I'll get the main points of it. If you make over $52,000 a year, you are in the top 1% globally. If you make over 28000 a year, you're in the top 5%. And if you make over 11000 which is the U.S. Um, poverty line, you are still in the top 15% of income globally and this takes into account cost of living impacts and an additional thing when it comes to okay how much money how does money affect happiness because or quality of life age old questioned, can money buy happiness when looking at self-reported life satisfaction it's actually found that doubling your money increases people's life satisfaction by 0.5 on a 1 to 10 scale so money does buy happiness but logarithmically um, (laughs) So combining those two facts, that if you go from $1,000 to $2,000 per year, that increase in happiness is the same as $2,000 to $4,000 or $10,000 to $20,000 or $100,000 to $200,000. So taking those two facts into account, it's estimated that for an American context, your money can have a hundred times multiplier. That if you look at a global context, you can have a hundred times greater impact donating globally than locally. Another common mistake when it comes to effectiveness in that charity starts locally, but if you look at how much of an impact you can have, you can have about a hundred times greater impact going to the lowest income brackets of the world than you would typically get yourself or locally. So I'll start with some examples of bad charities. Not necessarily bad, a lot of them are well-intentioned, but ones that aren't effective. Local charities tend to be extremely ineffective within a US context because you don't get that multiplier. Also, Relevant to today, because I imagine there's a decent chance one or some of you have already donated to this cause. Global responses to catastrophes like earthquakes, hurricanes, those tend to also be very ineffective. And it goes to the what I was talking about before, which is neglectedness. Whenever there's a disaster like after nine eleven, after the earthquake in Haiti, after the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, there's billions and billions and billions of dollars that go into it. And often in the worst case scenario, there are new charities that just got created for the sake of this that don't know how to run with the local people they're trying to give to, no matter how well-intentioned they are, and that often falls into issues of corruption or having too much money and not being able to do anything with it, because charities are obligated to give money to the people they claim they're going to give to. but. If it's a new charity, they might not have the local context, be able to talk with the people they're actually going to. And even big charities get so much money, they often don't know what to do with it. So we've had something like 20,000 people die in the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. But every year, 600,000 people die of malaria, but it doesn't break the news. So it gets a far smaller reception when it comes to charity. So your dollar can go a much longer way when it comes to something like malaria than disaster like their earthquake in Turkey and Syria. And so now for good for what's rated as the most effective charities, and this is by GiveWell, one of the biggest websites when it comes to figuring out what charities are good to give to. These are the top four they list. First one is medicine to prevent malaria. This one's estimated at $5,000 needed to save a life. Then malaria bed nets are the very common poster boy of effective altruism. Um, It costs $5 to get uh, a treated bed net. And it takes about, for every thousand malarial bed nets, treated bed nets given, about one of them will be saving a person from malaria. So that amounts to $5,500 per life saved. Vitamin deficiency supplements, $3,500 per life saved. And then cash incentives for routine childhood vaccines, um, $5,000 per life saved. And these are all ones that the charities have high amounts of transparency. There's been a lot of research into making sure it actually does what it says they do. So yeah. These are generally the four top when it comes to global health. So sort if of to put in context how low these numbers are, just imagine as there often is in UVA, there's another fire in some dorm and you rush into the dorm, bring out a puppy, maybe even a stray freshman out of the building, like you're a hero, you saved a life, you saved a puppy, which for some people is more. And imagine you did that every single year. It would be incredible. Do that once, you're a hero. If you do that every single year, it'd be incredible. And Or maybe it implies you're starting the fires, yeah (laughs) Maybe don't trust them too much (laughs) But then if you're looking at actually how much it costs to save life with the top charities $5,000 a year is something well achievable by the majority of sort of University educated Americans like sort of the jobs you're gonna go into so you can do that And it won't get you the same publicity or the same fame, but the effect is the same. All right. So public health is one of the easiest ones to talk about when it comes to effective altruism, because the effects are very obvious. Give a thousand bed nets. One of them is going to save a person from malaria. You've saved a life, but public health isn't the only thing that's wrong in the world. And there's a lot of other places where there's big opportunities to do good animal welfare. So effective altruism has listed a whole bunch of areas that are important. Public health is one, and I'm gonna to get to all three that they've listed as the most important. Animal welfare is another one which a lot of people in affective altruism, people are much smarter than me, have generally come to an agreement that's a very big thing. Disclaimer though, I am not a vegetarian. I don't eat beef. But that's generally for environmental reasons, but I think it's important that we draw our conclusions about our lifestyles from what we learn about the world and not that we try to decide what we know about the world from our pre-decided decisions about our lifestyle.
0: Being effective with your altruistic intentions is not always straightforward. One of the students in the audience pointed out that beef is considered the most ethical meat to consume for its calorie-to-life ratio. Sometimes there are many factors to consider, and a variety of solutions may arise to reflect that nuance.
2: Factory farming is generally regarded as the animals that live in factory farms generally have about the worst lives that there's ever been in history, generally put in tiny cages for all their lives, horrible conditions and sort of only rating it by the deaths does a disservice to sort of the actual extent of the problem. But when, if you're just counting deaths, this is the breakdown between how many animals die in factory farms versus in animal shelters like that are put down in the pound. And then if we look at money donated charities, it's very much skewed the other way. So this is one where it's, as I was talking about the three things, importance, tractability, and neglectedness. This is one that is extremely neglected. There's only $20 million put into um, factory farming every year. And even if the goal isn't to ban factory farming, there's a lot that could be done to improve the lives of these animals. A lot of extremely inhumane conditions. I think you mentioned fish. Another one I've heard about is shrimp. Shrimp generally have their eyes gouged out for all their lives. There are genuinely trillions of shrimp that are factory farmed that all live in that. And small things like that, that would require generally small lobbying to get a change in could have a huge impact if in fact their lives are valuable, which is debatable. I mean, everyone has different opinions on how valuable an animal life is and different types of animals, but it's extremely neglected. So this is one where a small amount could go a huge way. And Another important idea in effective altruism is the idea of worldview diversification. Because this one that I just uh, spoke about likely made a lot of people uncomfortable. And sort of this comes uh, from the idea that either you became defensive or horrified or whatever, but you probably came to this with your idea is okay. This is how much, like if there were one person or a thousand dogs, I don't know what i choose. If you go to one person or a million chickens. Like, what is the trade-off between between animals and humans? And you probably have an instinct that one, however much you want to rate one or the other. But important idea in effective altruism is worldview diversification, which is just the idea that to not be so certain about what it is you know for a fact. Because if we look historically, historically there have been countless awful, awful things that have been just accepted as normal. This is the way things are. And there are probably, statistically, there's probably something like that, that we are wrong about today. That in the future, people will look back in horror, whether it be animal welfare or something else. There's a good chance that something we do today in future people will look about, look at in absolute horror. So just the idea that to acknowledge that you might be wrong in something. So if so, if we go back to animal welfare, if there's a small chance that animals are do have some level of some important level of sentience or pain or the ability to suffer whatever it is you value if there's some chance of that given how big of an issue it is then it's something you should pay attention to anyway even if you don't actually believe that chickens have any value as life. Now when it comes to effective altruism, there's an interesting game you can play. who is the most effective? So I think in one of the books I read, he read an article where they decided the most, the best person in the world, uh, Matt Damon. I think they read some article and they said the best person in the world is Matt Damon. Probably not him. (laughs) One contender, D.A. Henderson, he was the person in charge of the WHO's effort in removing and eradicating smallpox. So by one metric, you could say he saved all those tens or hundreds of millions of lives. But i like to propose a different person, very related, a man called Viktor Zhdanov. He was a Ukrainian virologist in the late 50s. He went to huge lengths in petitioning the WHO to start this campaign to eradicate smallpox. He'd seen how effective eradicating smallpox had been in the Soviet Union, and he petitioned the WHO. WHO for years and years to start a global effort to eradicate smallpox. So He was not the man in charge of it, but due to his efforts, the WHO decided, yeah, this is something we're going to do. They put Henderson in charge and got rid of it. Now smallpox was an awful thing, and it was important enough that the WHO probably would have gone around to saying, hey, we should get rid of this at some point. Like, you should have that much confidence that they're like, this is a bad thing, maybe we shouldn't have it. But it's estimated or you can estimate however much you want. But if you estimate that he advanced the eradication of smallpox by ten years, just got the WHO to move it for ten years than what have otherwise happened, then that's ten to twenty million people life saved. So When you look at the effect of people, you can look at their marginal effect, because Henderson, great doctor, I'm sure, I don't know that much about him aside from that he got rid of smallpox, but the WHO was filled and is filled with Thousands of great doctors if he hadn't been there someone else probably would have taken his place and done the same thing Maybe not as effectively maybe a little bit slower But if you look at okay, what if he hadn't been there, then you're looking at the eradication ten years later So in effective altruism, we look at not only what is the effect that you might have But what is the effect you have compared to the next best person a common career path? That's um, touted as something you can do a lot of good in is becoming a doctor. If you're a surgeon, maybe you can save 20, 50, 100 lives in your career, but what we look at is your marginal impact. If you hadn't been there, there's probably someone else who wants to be a surgeon. Lots of people want to be surgeons. How much better did you do, or did this one surgeon do, than the next best person? And that's the impact you have. Moving away from smallpox, I'd like to propose A third person, Vasily Arkhipov. Anyone here heard of him? He helps run the effective altruism group at UVA. So Vasily Arkhipov was a Soviet Admiral. He was stationed on a submarine, a nuclear submarine, off the coast of Florida during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Key to the Cuban Missile Crisis, they decide, the two main commanders of the boat, of the submarine decide, we haven't heard from the Soviet Union in a week, and the Americans are dropping depth charges on us probably nuclear war started, we should launch our nukes. By chance he wasn't supposed to be on the boat, or he could have been on any random submarine, he was the overall admiral, but he was on this one, and with the carbon dioxide scrubbers failing and the temperatures reaching about 130 degrees, so everyone's brain was fuzzy. he decided no, let's not launch nukes, and he saved the whole world. And you might think saving the whole world is a big deal, but I'm gonna try to convince you that it's a bigger deal.
1: <laughs>
2: so the idea of long-termism at its principle is the idea that we shouldn't just care if we're trying to do the most good we can. Um, we shouldn't just care about the right now, but we should think a little, little bit ahead as probably often wish our uh, grandparents had done when they were our age. So a couple premises to long-termism before you understand what the whole big deal of it is. First is the idea, how big could humanity be? Because obviously, if you have something like Vasily Arkhipov is like, yeah, they're dropping death charges on us. Let's fire back. The whole world dies. Kind of sucks. But that also means that everyone that could have ever existed in the future also no longer gets to exist. So the first of three premises, convince you that that matters, is one, how big could humanity be? How many people could there be? So 8 billion people alive today, UN estimates we're going to reach about Ten billion, maybe thirteen billion at a max. For the sake of making the math easy, I'm gonna say we're gonna max out at ten billion people on Earth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Effective altruism. Get on it.
2: <laughs> Alright. One of you could have saved the world, but you didn't hear this presentation because it ran out of batteries. So <laughs> <laughs> You are the butterfly flapping his wings. <laughs> <can't do> <laughs> Alright. <laughs>
0: At this point in the talk, Rory had to exercise what he was learning and find an outlet for the computer charger.
2: So let's say we reach 10 billion people, stop growing on Earth. And then let's say that humans live for about as long as the typical mammalian species, which is a million years. Homo sapiens have been around 300,000 years. So we could expect that if we're a typical mammalian species and we live for another 700,000 people, if you say generation is 25 years, that's 40 billion people every 10 years times, it gets big, (laughs) that's what I'm saying. 700,000 times a billion or 100 million people a year, it gets big. But of course, we're not a typical species. We have the ability to stop ourselves from going extinct if we make the right choices, which means we could live perhaps as long as Earth is habitable. And you could say the Earth is gonna be habitable for half a billion years. So if you multiply 500 million years until the sun gets too big and Earth starts to fry, times 100 million people born every year, it's pretty big. It's optimistic, but this is the idea of how good could it be? If we don't go extinct, how many people could there be? And then of course the number gets astronomically huge, pun intended, if we go to the stars and have 10 billion people on every planet. So it could be pretty big, is this a, is, it's not hard to see. Next, the idea is, is that actually valuable? Why should we care about future people? Like, it's easy to think, um, with everything going on in the world, that stuff's just getting worse and worse, and that maybe we would be better off humans just stopped, st- stopped ruining everything, and like, it's not gonna get any better, guys but one of my favorite things in the world statistics so if we look at how much the changes in the world in the past hundred years if we look at child mortality rate increased everywhere across the world people living in extreme poverty also decreased immensely and this is just since 1990 it's gone down from 2 billion people to around 600 million people even as the population of earth has grown if we look at child labor and hazardous child labor child labor has gone down that last blip is COVID. But generally speaking, the trend is um, child labor is going down. Average years of schooling. Since the 50s, it's gone up from three to, what's that, eight. So people are better educated. People have the opportunity to do more in their life when it comes to climate change. An increasing number of countries are beginning to divest their countries from CO2 while having huge economic growth without increasing their climate change emissions. And then if it comes to That's sort of just the economic things when it comes to issues of how good, how free are people to live their lives. Since the 1800s and the 1700s, their homosexuality was illegal everywhere, and now there's an increasing, steadily increasing amount of countries that have decriminalized it. Number of democracies, again, democracy used to not be a word, and democracies have been just increasing, again, steadily since uh, the 1700s. So the point is, in the past hundred two hundred thousand years on almost every metric whether that be economic or in terms of how free are people to live their lives how many opportunities do people have to be what they want is increased in almost every metric for the past hundred years and there's not a whole lot of reason to think that it couldn't happen of course there are a lot of challenges which is where i'm going to get to with what it is we should be doing but It could be a lot better if we make the right choices. If we look at a really long term, this has all been in the past 100, 200 years. If we extend economic growth in only a couple hundred or a couple hundred years, no one would have to live in poverty. Then you could have everyone being as rich as the richest person is today. Then we could get to things like understanding the nature of our lives. There are some animals which can experience Magnetic waves and know which way is north naturally. There's no reason to think that there's not some future art form we could have that involves some sensation that is currently beyond our experience if you're going hundreds of thousands of years from the future. Just go back a hundred years, think what people a hundred years ago would think about our lives today, and then just go a hundred years forward, a hundred years forward after that a thousand years, 10,000 years, it could be better than we could even imagine. But will it be? So the other, the third impact is obviously if people can live happy, fulfilling lives, it would be good for them to have that. And there could be a lot of them. And those lives could be really good, better than the best life today. But another common criticism of long-termism is the idea that whatever we do, we can't exactly predict what we're gonna do. Like how can you know what the actions you do today will have on, People's, the quality of people's lives in hundred years in a thousand years. Sort of going back to this climate change as I mentioned before, Climate change or carbon reduction is one of the big things that's sort of more traditionally known, so it's one of the big things first brought about when it's considering how can we impact the future. Obviously, if we go back 50 years, If people had started investing heavily in non-fossil fuel power, the world today would be a lot better. And there were people predicting the effects of climate change going back decades. So had we started on that path of energy development a long time ago, it would have been a small change that would have had a huge change on where we are today. And from a longer-term perspective, because sort of long-termism tries to get you to think not just about your grandkids, but your grandkids, 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 thousands of years in the future so one example is similarly if we stop using coal if there were something to happen uh, awful pandemic nuclear war and humanity sort of went back to the stone age it would be a lot easier to get back to where we are today if there were some coal reserves such as there were at the start of the industrial revolution to get a new industrial revolution up and running so On the short term, we can expect that our impacts with climate change will have a tremendous impact on our grandchildren. But also, a thousand years in the future, if humanity's reverted back to the Stone Age, having some amount of coal left in the earth could also have a tremendous impact on our ability to get back to where we are today. And there's actually lots of examples of people trying to change the future. This is a quote by Shakespeare. But thy eternal summer shall not fade when in eternal lines to time thou grossed so long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this and this give life to thee. And it's common sentiment among poems that they want someone to live longer, love deserves to live longer. And they do so through writing it on a page. And this is a poem that's studied in English here at UVA hundreds of years later. So this written intention to have an impact and make, thing live, make stuff live longer than it actually does. And he was right through his words, it has lived longer. If any of you have taken class in international relations, You've probably come across Thucydides. He wrote a book about the Peloponnesian War. He wrote in that book that the point of it was not for people in his time in 1000 or 2000 BC, but so that in the future, war might be avoided in the future if people learned the lessons of his war thousands of years ago. And it is, it's taught in every international relations class. It's taught in every military in in the Pentagon and West Point thousands of years later, as he said he was writing for, It's still taught. So authors are generally the ones that have their stuff in a place where you can read it and have direct quotes that talk about them trying to impact the future. But Benjamin Franklin is another huge example of someone trying to impact the future. He talked and wrote a lot about when they were writing the Constitution. A lot of the Founding Fathers knew that the Constitution they wrote would impact the U.S. hundreds of years later, and the whole world as one of the the founding democracy, debatable, but he knew it'd have a huge impact, and it does. Today, we're still debating the Second Amendment. And so they knew back then that the words they wrote would impact people hundreds of years in the future, and they gave a lot of thought to that, though. Obviously in some cases, not enough. So this brings the third big category of effective altruism. There was global health, animal welfare, and existential risk, which is the threat that, the most obvious one is that humanity goes extinct. And as I said, that impacts everyone else that might've existed in the future. Every moment of happiness, every moment of anything you might value that might've come in the future, that's all gone. So existential risk, if you buy into that idea, then starts to become the biggest priority because of how big of an impact it is. It goes back to importance. How big of an impact is it gonna have? An existential risk behind, besides just 8 billion people being affected today, could affect trillions and trillions. So first, natural risk. And this is the one you're probably most familiar with in, from all the movies about asteroids hitting the earth, Yeah, an asteroid hitting the Earth is one risk. Another common risk that caused several mass extinctions in the past are supervolcano explosions. These are generally ones that we have an impact to reduce. It's the easiest for us to reduce. And in many cases, we have nearly eliminated the risk. A few months ago, NASA successfully had its DART mission, which tried to change the orbit of an asteroid so that if ever found NASA ever found an asteroid coming towards Earth to know that we have the ability to stop it and it was a successful mission and that in combination with tracking that's been going on since the 70s to track every single asteroid that could pose a threat to humanity this is one risk that has largely been removed as an existential risk now when you're talking about percentages when you get smaller than a kilometer it becomes harder to track so there's about a one percent chance in your lifetime that an asteroid on the scale of 100 meters wide will hit the Earth, which would be the biggest disaster in like humanity's lifespan, would cause the destruction of a continent, basically, would be pretty bad, and there's still stuff we should do about it but the, as a threat to the actual extinction of humanity, it's been one that's largely been reduced. So natural risks are ones that humans can easily fight against and we have been fighting against. Next one is nuclear war. It's Dr. Strangelove if you haven't watched it, go watch it. Not so great. So I have several books here, and one of them, The Precipice, Toby Ord, the author, marks the air we're living in as what he calls the precipice, and he marks it as starting um, 1945 in the Trinity test. Trinity test was the first testing of an atomic bomb. There were scientists at the time that speculated that if we achieved a fission reaction that it could ignite the nitrogen in our atmosphere and burn the entire world. We know today that that's not possible, but They ran tests and at the time that they did the Trinity test, they did not know for certain that it would not ignite the entire planet. And since then, we have been living in a perpetual state of the greatest threat to our existence being ourselves. We have done things that have given us the possibility of ending ourselves and nuclear war is the most famous one. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, sort of the generals in the room and John F. Kennedy gave the chance of nuclear war actually have happened happening at around a third. And that's without knowing stuff like that Vasily Arkhipov that I talked about earlier had stopped the Soviets from launching a nuclear attack. So in the 20th century alone, between that and several other near catastrophes, there is about a 50% chance that there was a nuclear war. And when it comes to this, there are several things that sort of effect altruism that has been recommended. One, sort of on the research side, is running climate models. The idea nuclear war wasn't seen as an existential risk for a while. It was actually Carl Sagan who first thought of the idea of nuclear winter after studying the climates of Mars and Venus. And it turns out the greatest threat to humanity isn't the actual nukes, but the, the, the fact that they'll send lots of dust into the atmosphere which will block out the sun and bye-bye crops. And Food's kind of important, it turns out. So one big thing that they recommend as a very effective career is running climate models to see, okay, in what scenarios, what's the best scenario for humanity surviving after a nuclear war? Another big policy thing that they, that they recommend um, sort of investing charity, charity money into, into lobbying is getting the US to put its nukes off a hair trigger. The idea is that the US has them, has all nukes ready to be launched within 10 seconds, which came from the old idea of mutually assured destruction. Okay, you can't launch nukes at us or we'll launch nukes at you. But that idea of the hair trigger as being part of that is no longer relevant because we have nuclear submarines, we have nukes in places that can't be destroyed in a first attack. So having them on a hair trigger where we could accidentally launch them is unnecessary and a very big part of the pushes that come from mitigating existential risk that people involved in long-termism within effective altruism promote um another one is pandemics actually was very funny again same book not funny Uh, not at all funny Um, he starts his chapter on pandemics and then halfway through he mentions, ah, the COVID pandemic just started, I'm rewriting this chapter. But it's something that it's been a big deal in effective altruism for a long time, both natural pandemics that are increasingly likely from uh, factory farming, but also engineered pandemics. Like with CRISPR, it used to take a billion dollars to create high school students have done it at their student fair. The bubonic plague is publicly available information today. Anyone can print it. Other one is AI alignment. Any of you ever played universal paperclips? It's the idea that you're an AI trying to make as many paperclips as you can and you end up turning the whole universe into paperclips. Something like that is one way of doing it. The other is and the more likely one is what's called value lock-in where countries like China have already invested a lot into AI in terms of facial recognition, automatic censorship. They've been investing in AI heavily to help censorship of the country and find out people that might protest. So if we got into a bad value lock-in with some just take your choice of dystopia, then that would be a bad ending, and it's also considered an accidental risk, something so bad that we can't get out of it. One of the last things I want to leave you with is the idea that we are in the most important century right now one this century will likely be the one where we invent artificial general intelligence where we invent a whole bunch of new things that could end us and if we get through it then we'll have gone through the hardest stages then there's two other points regardless of the existential risk and just how much can you do to change the world we're living in a very very special time because one the rate of economic growth is completely unprecedented for hundreds of thousands of years, people lived at basically the same level. And we're at 2% growth today, which doesn't sound like a, like a lot. But if we did that for 10,000 years, we would have the economy of a country for every single atom in the universe, which is ridiculous. So obviously just mathematically, we can't keep growing as fast as we are. And the other is communication only in the past few decades has the idea of one person in one country been able to spread all the way across the world in hours. And once we, if we start colonizing other planets, other stars, then you run into the limit of the speed of light. And once again, it'll be impossible for one person's ideas to impact everyone. So we're living in, it is basically just this century where one person with an idea can have an impact on everyone and change everything. So the values that we decide are important today could have a very big impact on the values that humanity has a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now. And small things can have a huge impact. Just look at any religious text. The Bible, written thousands of years ago, has had a tremendous impact on the course of human history and is still very influential today and where a lot of people derive their values from. And because of how easy it is to spread today, the values we come up with today might be the ones that last forever. So beyond charity, that's the main thing, you can have a career. So if those are the two, the two ways can be effective. One, donate. And two is your career. There's one resource I recommend 80,000 hours. 80,000 hours is the estimated time you'll spend on your career, and that's the impact you can have if you choose to make your career something impactful. One way for it to be impactful is to earn to give. Just choose a high-paying job, probably something you still believe in, and then give as much as you can away. And the other is have a career in something that is impactful, like trying to lobby to get nuclear weapons off a hair trigger. Here's some resources. First, giving what we can. That's one which is a pledge that already several thousand people have done. It's a pledge to give 10% of your income to charity for the rest of your life. It's one I've taken. It's one most people in effect, a lot of people in effect of altruism have taken. It also lists a bunch of top charities. That's where I got these charities from. GiveWell. Is the main one which lists all the top charities there are. 80,000 hours, you can actually have an interview with them and they'll give you free career advice if you want to make your career as impactful as you can. For every, they respond to about 50% of applicants and have like a call with them to give actual career advice. The link here specifically is one where. You can get any of these books for free. These are three books that I based this talk on. If you want any of them, I can loan them to you. You can also get any one of them for free at that link. And then the last one is the link to the Effective Altruism Club at UVA. I think it's too late to join the fellowship today, this semester, but you can still come to the meetings. But I did their fellowship last semester and I'm a facilitator for it this semester. If you're interested, you can join it next semester. It was really good. There's lots of really good conversations that go more in depth on everything I've talked about. And I'll end it with the epigraph of this book, which is to the hundred billion people before us who fashioned our civilization, to the seven billion now alive whose actions may determine its fate, and to the trillions to come whose existence lies in the balance. This is Effective Altruism.
1: Every disaster movie and zombie movie you've ever seen is completely wrong. They always depict, invariably, the catastrophe happens and everybody starts killing each other and shooting each other and taking stuff from each other. We know, empirically, from a 100 years of research and all kinds of examples going further back, what people actually do is leap to each other's defense. People reflexively and under duress put themselves at great risk to help others. So this impulse to be altruistic is a fundamental part of what it is to be a human animal. You know, our life is pretty good for most people in the US, even people who are poor. If you zoom way out and look at life on the planet, Americans are doing pretty well. One of the things that stimulates an altruistic impulse is an obvious catastrophe, you know? If a kid falls into a swimming pool and can't swim and is drowning right in front of you, (laughs) you're gonna jump in and save them, right? Effective altruism is trying to come up with ways to overcome the feature that a catastrophe has to be happening right now for us to engage so it's like, you know, well, let's let's consult your, your passions and your values. Do you want to be saving lives if you could? Most people would answer yes. Here's a way to do that. The exercise was so simple. We could just put a dollar into our chosen, uh, you know, bin for what we wanted to support. And slowly but surely he revealed, you know, which dollars we're going to have the biggest impact. And by impact, we mean saving actual human lives.
0: Symposia is a production of the Brown College Community Media Initiative and the Virginia Audio Collective. We'd like to thank Alexander Templeton and Rory McAlevey for the content of this episode, which was hosted by Jim Cohn and produced by Sage Tangway with production assistance from Sophia Moore. Subscribe to Symposia and our sister show, Circle of Willis, wherever you get your podcasts.